The following is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Chorus Entertainment. Hey, hey, it's back. Disability Law Show. Good to have you on board for the uh, the next hour or so. John Scholes here. As always, my good pal Martin Willems is here. Sam Firu to Martin LLP. Reach out to Martin anytime. You've got questions. I guarantee you he can uh, get those answers on for you. He's got a great team with him as well. You can email him anytime. Help at disabilityrights.ca. And always the phone number is good. Good place to start too. It doesn't cost you anything to pick up a phone and ask a, a question or two. One eight five five eight two one fifty nine hundred and beyond that. A lot of questions can be answered at pocketdisabilitylawyer.ca. I'll give you all that information again throughout the hour several times. So if you missed it, no problem. You'll pick it up here in just a bit. Uh, three questions people have when they're cut off LTD. Important ones. We narrowed it down to three. That's coming up a little later on in the hour, at least the next half hour anyway. But, uh, Martin, we always start off with the case of the day or a week that was. Uh, what's, uh, what's cooking today, pal? Yes, John. Yeah, th- thanks for that. So we get questions on a weekly basis. And as you know, we've got offices in Ontario, in BC, and in Alberta. We've got lawyers manning all offices and get questions from people regarding their denied disability claims or if they've just got a question regarding a disability claim or help with an interpretation of a clause in the policy. Uh, we, we get questions from all angles. And this is something that I'm going to speak about now, which comes up every now and again. So it is somebody who has been on claim. In other words, the insurance company has approved the claim and has been paying long-term disability benefits for five years, which is a long time, right? So it's into what is called the any occupation phase of the policy. Uh, they're not ready to return to work. So there's a reason why they have been off work for five years because the condition has not improved. And when I'm speaking about the condition, I speak about the medical condition, various conditions, it's not just one. What often happens is the insurance company has, I mean, I'm not saying this is in all cases, but there's quite often what is called a revolving door because there are new case managers coming into play on a continuous basis. So for this person, they're probably on their seventh or eighth case manager. This new case manager is very motivated, it appears to be, and has decided that this person who contacted us had to go for what is called a functional capacity evaluation. Regardless of the fact that there has been no improvement, the insurance company has accepted that this person is unable to work in any occupation. And there is no proof, as I said, that their functional Uh, tolerances have improved. In other words, their restrictions and limitations as to why they cannot work have not improved and have remained in place. So the policies do require that people attend examinations as mandated by the insurance company on a reasonable basis. So this person did attend the functional capacity evaluation, um, protesting though that they continue to have problems. And there was no, so a functional capacity evaluation is something where the the person conducting this examination puts you through a battery of tests, be it moving blocks around or seeing how long you can sit, how long you can stand for, what you can do. But in my mind, these things are limited in the context that they cannot measure pain, they cannot measure fatigue. And quite often when you have somebody who goes to these things as an insured, a person who is on disability and wants to get benefits paid, they'd go to this, these processes in good faith, these assessments, 
put forth their best efforts. So on the day that they participate, they may be able to do some of those things. But then they pay for it in the weeks that follow because they have restrictions and limitations and have conditions that would prevent them from doing these simulated tasks on an ongoing basis. And that's what happened here. The person did go, put forth their best effort, really tried, and then was in bed for days following and reported this to the doctor as well. The issue that I have with these assessments often is that there is no follow-up. Sometimes there is, but for the most part, the ones that I've seen, there has been no follow-up by the person conducting the examination. So they don't see, oh, how are you doing the next day? Do you have increased pain? What symptoms do you have? None of that was done here. So it's a snapshot of somebody really trying, but it's not a snapshot of what happened afterwards, how bad things were. On top of this, this person has significant anxiety and other mental health issues. So the functional capacity evaluation, to some extent, tried to measure the physical restrictions and limitations and came up with a report saying that this person is now functional. Having said that, that they've got chronic pain, they can very limited in what they could do on an ongoing basis. There was no follow-up. The condition has now been exacerbated. As a result of that, and as a result of having to go through this whole process, the existing anxiety and other mental health disorders have also now been worsened. Yet, based on the findings of this functional capacity evaluation, the insurance company has denied ongoing benefits. For somebody who has been out of the workforce for five years, whose condition has not been approved, and because a new case manager came onto the scene. So with me describing it this way, and obviously there are always two sides to something, but this is how this person is experiencing it. Obviously, I'm sure everybody listening to this, how can this be? How can this be? But it happens, and it happens routinely. So we're going to get involved in this case, and I would welcome anybody else who is listening to what I've just described. If you are facing a functional capacity evaluation or another independent medical examination, reach out to us if you've got questions as to what you should prepare yourselves for, how to deal with this, get your doctors involved if there's a concern with you attending one of these assessments, because there are so many pitfalls that people do not know about. And as I say, we speak to people throughout the country, really, other than Quebec and the territories, with Mm -hmm. respect to cases that have been denied on this basis or with respect to somebody who is having questions. Because, you know, you're the layperson. You've worked for years. Now you're on disability. You're dealing with an insurance company. They wrote the policy. They know how to manage it. You don't know much because this is not what you've been dealing with. This is not your expertise. We review policies on an ongoing basis. So again, we welcome anybody who have questions to contact us. And as we always say, we offer free consultations to at least give you information. As we always say, information is power. Knowledge is power. So you know how to navigate the process moving forward. Do you find generally over the, uh, the length of your, your practice, Martin, that you'll, you'll generally get more pushback and static when it comes to mental health concerns? Because we always say, you know, you can't see it on an x-ray or an MRI or a CT scan. It's not definitive like a broken bone. So the insurance company likes to fight that battle more often and, and for longer. Such an interesting question. You know, it's uh, we've been dealing with this for years. Uh, oh. I do some, to some extent. It, it's interesting because... The disability policies will provide that you have to show that you've got an illness or a condition 
that prevents you from performing the essential duties of your occupation. Yeah. Right? It doesn't say, some of them do, very, very few of them do require what I'm going to say now, but they don't say they require objective medical evidence. Objective medical evidence, I suppose, in the legal analysis would be x-rays, things like that. But there's also case law speaking about that some of the objective evidence can come from the person. So we're dealing with depression and anxiety. It's interesting you raised this question because I, I suppose I could speak about this as well. I had somebody else contact me who has just gone off work, has work issues, workplace issues, but also significant issues in their personal life. Mm-hmm. And the insurance company keeps denying the claim because they now have a, ma- a major depression and anxiety. And the insurance company keeps denying the claim saying, well, we don't have sufficient medical evidence. We don't have objective medical evidence. And the more this person asks the insurer, what do you mean by objective medical evidence? What is it that you want? They just keep repeating the same thing back to her. Hmm. Now, your question, do we get this on an ongoing basis? Yes, and I don't think the status quo on that will change. Mental Hmm. health illnesses are the main driver of disability claims in this country and in the world. They make up the vast majority of disability cases and also are the ones that are mostly denied. Of course, there are things like chronic fatigue, chronic pain, and other things that do get denied, but mental health are the ones, and they've increased after COVID. We know this. Insurance companies have come out releasing statements saying how mental health illness cases have increased. But is there objective medical evidence? It's interesting because some insurance companies might say, we're going to approve your claim, and after a period of time may deny it based on a lack of objective medical evidence, which begs the question, you proved it. So what is the difference now? How have things changed in the face of people not having improvement? They love to deny cases when the person is not getting better by saying that your medical treatment has not improved or has not been changed. You've been on the same medication or your doses has not been increased or you're not doing counseling, whatever the reason may be. But I, I really feel strongly about this. Mental health cases, we've, we've spoken about this over many years and I'm not speaking about this show, I mean in, in this country when people speak about the stigma that there existed regarding mental health illnesses, people did not want to acknowledge they did not want to even speak about to their family or to their doctors about this. Yeah. That is changing. The insurance industry needs to catch up with that. It is, these are valid cases, these are valid illnesses, and they can be profoundly disabling. Profoundly. So, if anybody listens to this, and you've got a denied disability claim based on any reason, but specifically for mental health illnesses, by all means, please do not think that there is no recourse for you. There is. You just need to reach out so we can discuss with you what your options are. A good start, pal. we got lots, uh, so much more to go, including three questions people have when they're cut off from LTD. That is on the way. Then we'll dive into your, all your emails and uh, your correspondence for sure, so stick around for that. In the meantime, I mentioned giving out the contact information throughout the hour, which I will continue to do. Help at disabilityrights.ca, email address, and phone number, one 821 5900 We'll continue. This is the Disability Law Show. Hang in there with us. You're listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Chorus Entertainment. And welcome back. Disability Law Show. John Scholes here and always Martin Willems is uh, reachable by phone and other means. one 821 
5900 help at disabilityrights.ca and for any other questions you can ask them anonymously at mydisabilityquestions.com take that out for a spin and you'll be able to leave your questions on the website and get them answered okay we mentioned this uh, Martin want to get into the main topic for the hour three questions people have when they're cut off from LTD there's probably three million but we got three of the big ones to go on the uh, show today First one, uh, should I apply for CPP disability or other programs? Uh, by the way, we have a whole website about this, uh, ltdfaq.ca. Uh, what do you think, pal? Should they be applying for that or do they have to? I'll take it one step further. Okay, so you're right. There are so many things that we can, that people may ask when they, once they're denied LTD, but this is a good one. And even on this one, we can speak about it the whole show. But let's say this. Should they apply? for CPP disability or must they. Under the terms of most disability policies, you are required to apply for CPP disability benefits or other sources of income. But consider what we're discussing now. It is once you have been denied, right? So they're not paying you benefits. The question is, what can you do? This is a question that comes up every single time that we speak to people who have been denied because they're very stressed. Obviously, they cannot work. They have to deal with their illness. And now they have no financial support. It is a terrible position to be in. So the question then becomes, how can I manage this while the insurance company is not paying me benefits? And then one of the answers would be, consider applying for CPP disability benefits if you meet the test. And I'll speak about what that is in a minute. There are also potentially other programs that you could apply for. In BC, for example, there may be the PWD, the Persons with Disabilities. In Alberta, I know there's H for people who struggle and financially. There are different tests for these, but you may want to consider applying for these because it may provide you with some financial relief while your claim is not being paid by the insurer. Going back to CPPD, the test there is that you must have an illness or a condition that is number one, severe, number two, prolonged, and number three, to the extent that you cannot work in any gainful occupation. So CPP disability benefits is uh, would be benefits paid by the federal government, managed by Service Canada, and insurers often push people to apply for these benefits if it appears that the person is going to be disabled on an ongoing basis. So few reasons to apply for it. The first one is it may provide you with some financial relief while you're not receiving benefits. And the assessment for this is not done in the manner that insurance companies do it. There's not going to be the service scanner is not going to try and disprove it by going out to go get their own medical evidence to show that you cannot. I would think maybe sometimes in the past, I remember that there have been ones where they did get through the various appeal process doctors to opine on it. But for the most part, what I've seen is you apply, you may have an interview with one of the employees of Service Canada, and then the decision is made. But once you're on claim, it's not this ongoing adjudication where every few months you have to reprove or continue to prove that you remain disabled. And also with CPP disability benefits, there is a cost of living increase. So every year mm. it does increase, which again may provide you with some benefit. In addition to that, if you have children under the age of 19, or if uh, that may also, it's not a set rule if they're right. going to university or other schools, it may be beyond that as well. But the point is, you may also get child benefits 
once you apply for CPPD, depending on your circumstances, which would for, and that's for every child. So there may be some financial relief while you're trying to sort out this issue with the insurance company. And the other reason, which is a big one, we would say that the fact that the government, the federal government, accepts that you cannot, not just your own occupation, you cannot work in any gainful occupation, is also evidence to support that the insurance company should pay to you your LTD benefits. Of course, insurers at their end will say, well, they do a completely different test, like I've just described. They may not do independent medical examinations. They look at these things differently. That may be true, but the government, if they approve it, they don't approve every claim, obviously. They're going to look at the evidence that you submit from your treating physicians. And if the treating physicians outline why it is that you cannot work, that your condition is severe, severe in other words, that it's, on, it's to the extent that you cannot work, it's prolonged, that there may no, be no other treatments available. If that is the case and the government approves it, that same evidence will be submitted to the insurance company and they, for all likelihood, really should approve the LTD claim as well. I didn't realize that CPPD had a had the COLA, the cost of living adjustment. Is that across the board? It is across the board. Wow. So CPP does get approved. Once it is approved, it does increase every year. Wow, I had no idea. That's interesting. Okay, point number two or question number two about uh, things people ask when being cut off from LTD. Can a treating physician or medical team help me get my benefits back? What do you think about that? The most important component, to, in my mind, to a disability claim is the medical evidence and other evidence that is su uh, submitted in support of the application. So your doctors are familiar with you, or they should be. Once you submit a claim for long-term disability benefits, you have to submit something called an attending physician statement, which is a document completed by your attending physician, be it a specialist or be it your family doctor. In that document, they're going to outline what your condition is, in other words, what the diagnosis or diagnoses may be, what your restrictions and limitations are, subjectively and objectively, and a discussion about a potential return to work. So your doctors, when they submit these applications, if they agree to support your claim, sounds like they will be on board to support that you cannot work. If your claim is denied, it is crucial that you continue to involve your treating physician or your medical team, if there's more doctors involved, uh, psychologists, other people who may be treating you, so that everybody works cohesively and that they can continue to support your claim. Because once we get involved through a legal claim, we will also want to get potentially updated reports from those doctors to address the ongoing restrictions and limitations that you may have, to address the treatment that you're undergoing, the effectiveness of that treatment, or if it's not working, what other options may be available to you, and ultimately to speak about your ability to function in the workplace, be it your own or any other occupation. So getting your doctors involved definitely is important. The question, can they help you get your benefits back? I believe that is crucial to any disability claim. Once it is denied, you have to continue to see the doctors on a regular basis. And by the way, the policies require that. Doctors have to be seen yeah. on a regular basis. You need to be under the appropriate care of a physician with respect to the specific condition that you have. So the more you see your doctors, 
the more informed your doctors are, the more comfortable they should be in order to allow them to write reports that may continue to support your claim. So definitely your treating physicians would be a key component to any disability claim, be it if you go through an appeal or if you do a, um, a legal claim. You have to continue to involve your doctors. Well, you, you dropped the A-bomb there, and I think this one's going to be part of your next answer for the third question. That is, you know, Martin, do I have to accept the insurer's decision? Is it worth fighting the denial? Now, again, there's so much to be said here. Do oh. you have to accept the insurer's decision? Remember what I said with the previous one. The fact that you have gone off work, the fact that your doctor supports you, tells you something. Right? That is, you cannot work. Why would anyone choose to go from a working situation where they're earning 100% of their income to a long-term disability situation where they may be earning 50 to 67% of their income? Why would anybody choose that? So if you submit your claim and the insurance company says, no, don't accept that decision, why would you? But many people feel that this is it's this David versus Goliath situation, that they think the insurance company has all the power, they have all the knowledge, and maybe they must be right. Further to that, we have always, we've discussed this issue before, the term total disability, what does that mean? Many people may think, oh, okay, the insurance company is in their letters, and they do say this. We acknowledge that you may have some symptoms, but we don't think that these symptoms are totally disabling. So then the person thinks, okay, they mean total, so should, maybe they're right. Total disability sounds like something that is complete and ultimate. But in the context of a total disability claim, you have to look at what does that mean. It simply means that you have a condition that prevents you from performing the essential duties of your occupation. It doesn't mean that you have to be bedridden or comatose or to the, have been so disabled that you cannot dress or feed yourself. That's not the test. The test is, can you work in your occupation? If the answer is yes, there's no claim. If the answer is no, you have a claim to fight. And just because the insurance company says we disagree with you and your doctor and your other treatment providers, definitely doesn't mean that they're correct. Most likely they're not correct because they haven't had the benefit of seeing you, meeting you. Their doctors haven't had that uh, um opportunity either other than having independent medical examinations done so i feel very strongly on this please don't just accept their decision so when we get people phoning us yes you have an option to appeal remember you're appealing to the same entity that denied your claim in the first place so you're going to gather further evidence from your treating providers and submit that to the insurance company not to say that it doesn't work at times but you may be facing a denial again. But many, many people decide that they don't want to go down that path. They don't want to deal with this insurer who has already denied their claim. They don't yeah. feel that they can trust them. So when we get involved, we take over all communications. You don't need to deal with the insurer anymore. Everything comes to us, and we'll be fighting for your rights under that policy. Yeah, that's one of the uh, the biggest things I know historically you guys always hear from clients that sign on is like, you know, I want to get better and I'm in, you know, whatever physical or mental pain I'm dealing with. But man, what a load was lifted when I no longer get emails and phone calls from the insurance company because it's all got to go through you now, right? All the communications go through us. Your focus, as you've said correctly, John, is getting better, focusing on your treatment, following your doctor's treatment advice while somebody else is having your back and fighting the insurance company on your behalf. I've had many people say to me, 
they may already have a mental health disorder, right? Now they deny it. So that doesn't help the situation. And they don't have financial <laughs> yeah. means. They sometimes feel that they've been bullied by the insurance company. So that increases their their symptoms. That somebody may say to me, I've got call display. The moment that I see the insurance company is phoning me, I go into a panic attack. That's not helpful. You don't okay. want to have that situation. How can you get better if that's what you're dealing with? So when it goes to the lawyer, you can focus on trying to get better. We got a lot of emails to get through, Martin, but we'll take a short break here and get right back into those. Anytime you want to send one along, if it doesn't appear on the remainder of today's show, it will on a future show. That is help at disabilityrights.ca or the phone number anytime to reach Martin and his team, 1-855-821-5900. This is a Disability Law Show. Short break and we're coming right back. You're listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Chorus Entertainment. You bet. This is the Disability Law Show. Good to have you along for the hour. If you're sticking in for the entire 60 minutes, we'd love that. Uh, you can always reach out to Martin and his team. Uh, a couple different ways. Emails, which we read a lot of on this show, so your email might uh, might reach a show if uh, that's cool with you. And how you do that is help at disability disabilityrights.ca. There's a website called mydisabilityquestions.com that's basically another forum for you to ask your questions to uh, Martin and his team. They will get answered. It can be completely anonymous and there's also a searchable type database so maybe your question has been previously asked, which is nice. It'll save you some time. But failing all that, you can just use a phone as we always have. one 821 5900 is how you're going to go about uh, reaching the firm and Martin on the phone. Okay, first email, pal. Here we go. It says, uh, Martin, is a pregnant woman entitled to disability benefits when uh, giving birth and for how long? I don't think we've ever had that question before. It's a good one. It is a good one. And as with everything, nothing's ever black or white. There's a lot of gray. So we look <laughs> at what does the contract say, the policy. Most policies will provide that if a person is on uh, maternity leave, it provides for um, periods that the insurance company may not pay benefits. So if you, if this happens, you, you, you're pregnant, you give birth and you go off work, you have access to federal benefits through, you know, maternity leave or EI benefits that may be paid for that period of time while you are away. But if there were complications due to the pregnancy that, um, or where they had to go off work before they normally would have gone off work. That should be covered. Um, but my experience has been any period where maternity benefits are paid or benefits through EI are paid because of a birth, um, there may be a suspension and then it may carry on. So you may have somebody who has anxiety and depression and that may impact things as well. So it really depends on the language of the policy, but if it is a regular birth and the person goes off work, disability benefits are not going to be paid because of giving birth, because your disability benefits are there for when you become disabled, and that in itself is not a disability, unless there's complications or unless, and this is another example, mm -hmm. birth, the, the birth happens and then there is postpartum depression. Right. which leads to a much, much longer period of work. That in itself, would, one, one would argue, would lead to benefits being paid because postpartum depression, mental health illness, can you perform the duties of your own occupation? If the answer is no, benefits should be paid. 
Let's get to our uh, next one. Says Martin, uh, love the show. Can you answer this question for me? My insurance company paid me for a short-term disability period of two weeks in August of last year, 2022. I returned to work and went off again in November of 2022 for the same related illness. It was considered a new uh, STD claim because the two-month recurrence period had passed. My STD claim period has ended and is now into long-term. My insurance uh, now requires me to apply for CPP disability and will deduct from my LTD benefit any CPP benefits I receive for the same uh, or related disability. But one of the rules my insurer applies is the following. Benefits payable from other sources which began before the commencement of your current disability will not be taken into account if CPP determines I was disabled before November 22nd. Does this mean all retroactive and current going forward CPP disability benefits that I've received will not be deducted from LTD? Or does it mean only the CPP benefits related to the same period as the LTD will be taken into account and deducted? Yeah, I see the confusion. What do you think? There is a confusion here. Now, remember, we discussed CPP earlier in the show. When CPP is paid, the policy provides that these are, most policies provide that these are what is called direct offsets under the policy, which means that the insurance company can deduct it from your LTD benefit. So it cannot go back if you receive a retroactive payment and it extends before LTD began, the insurance company cannot deduct that component. They can only deduct it for the same period that you are receiving LTD benefits. So if it starts, your LTD benefit starts in April of 2023 and your CPP disability had been approved to January of 2023, those first three months don't impact your LTD. It is everything that happens beyond. So moving forward from when LTD was paid, was effective, and CPP overlapped that period, it is only deducted from your LTD benefit amount moving forward. So nothing in excess of what is being paid for that particular month will be deducted. And that pretty much answers that one, but yeah, she, she did that a lot quicker than I thought you would. That's that's really impressive. Uh, <laughs> seriously. Uh, next email is this. Uh, says, I'm on LTD and approved for CPP disability. My insurance company is deducting CPP from my monthly payment. My policy has an all-source income maximum, which includes CPP disability. I've filed a complaint with insurance and insurance ombudsman, but they claim CPP is a direct offset and that all other members are being treated the same. If the policy is ambiguous and of CPP offset and all source income maximum includes CPP, which clause governs? Which way do we go? Okay, so this is an interesting question because we have, in certain cases, argued that there's something called contra preferentum, which is a legal term, which means that if there is ambiguity regarding a specific clause, then it should be read against the party who wrote the contract. But I don't think that's what's happening here. So with disability benefits, there's a co- the contract and then it has offsets. It has direct offsets and it has indirect offsets. Direct offsets, in my experience, almost always will cr- um, include CPP disability benefits. Indirect offsets may be other things and there's a specific way to calculate this. Indirect offsets may include things like CPP disability benefits that you get because of your child, your child benefits, that may be included, and others. So to keep this short, I will say I would want to look at this clause or these clauses that um, this person who sent the email is inquiring about to see whether there is actually 
ambiguity because it may be confusing to anybody when they read that policy and it says these are the direct offsets these are the indirect offsets and it speaks about I, I think I know the policy actually what they're speaking of because I've seen this and you have to understand what it says and I don't think it is ambiguous it may be confusing but I would love to see the this actual policy if it's not the one that I'm thinking of and if it is ambiguous then obviously there may be an argument to be made and with that, we got to get into uh, one more break here and return with more of your questions via email. Send them along anytime, by the way. May appear on a future show. Help at disabilityrights.ca and the phone number to reach Martin and team, 1-855-821-5900. We'll continue. This is the Disability Law Show. Hang on. You're listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Chorus Entertainment. Disability Law Show, we're back. A few minutes to go. Thank you for the emails ahead of time. If you sent one in, if we don't get to it with the uh, remaining minutes here, we'll save it for a uh, future show. It is help at disabilityrights.ca and the phone number to reach out to Martin and the crew at uh, San Fury to Martin LLP is one 855 821-5900. Next email, Martin. My LTD is being administered by a third party on behalf of my employer. My employer has requested for me a copy of my medical records from my treating physician. I confirmed with third party provider that they have provided medical updates to my employer. My employer has given me a final chance to provide medical documents. And if I refuse, they say it is a breach of my employment obligation. And if I don't, they will take further action up to and including termination of my employment. Do I have to comply even though third party provider has provided medical information updates? That's get you angry. Yeah, <laughs> that's yeah. It would get you angry. Uh, yeah. We're fortunate at our firm because we have employment lawyers as well. So I'm not an employment lawyer. I can speak to this to some extent, but I will say at the end of this, speak to an employment lawyer as with respect to what your rights are as an employee. But what I do know is your employer has a third-party entity adjudicating the claim, and it probably is an insurance company. And that insurance company, from what I'm reading here, has all the medical records. I do not believe that your employer is entitled to your medical records. They're entitled to some information, like um, information from the doctor addressing what your restrictions and limitations are and whether accommodations may be available or would be applicable to your situation, and potentially what a return to work date may look like. But they're not entitled to the diagnosis and they're not entitled, as I understand things, to a copy of your actual medical records. It just would not make sense in this scenario like that. So if that's actually what's happening here, if the employer is saying, give us your medical records, I don't think that's <laughs> that should happen here. Um, and you really should have a discussion with an employment lawyer with respect to what your rights are if the employer decides to terminate in the face of you refusing to provide your actual medical record. So contact mm. our team and you can get a consultation with an employment lawyer. And again, you've got the email address, obviously, because you sent that email along, but the phone number one eight five five eight two one. 5900. Here we go, Martin. Next one down the list says, uh, guys, I'm in the process of applying for disability in April of 2023. I pinched all the nerves in my lower back. My doctor filled out my forms for the CPP disability when he filled out the uh, part for me returning to work. And he put 12 to 24 months with modified work. But in my job, which I'm a server, which I have been doing for 38 years, there is no modified work. It's either you come back or you don't. 
by him saying that maybe in 20, uh, 12 to 24 months I may return back, will this qualify me or at least disqualify me from getting uh, the disability? My doctor also did put this is likely to deteriorate recurrent. Okay, interesting question. So mm. if we are speaking about CPP disability benefits, which it sounds like we are, remember what I said earlier on. The definition is that you must have a condition that is number one, severe, number two, prolonged, number three, to the extent that you cannot work in any gainful occupation. Not the job that you were doing before. It's not limited to that. It is any gainful occupation. If the doctor is saying in the records, in the report, that you may return to work on a modified basis within the next 12 to 24 months, remember when we speak about the test being prolonged, I suspect that that's where you may face some difficulty that the adjudicator on the other end may say, well, if the doctor is saying within the next 12 to 24 months, you may be able to return to work on a modified basis. Number one, does that mean it's prolonged? And number two, does it mean that it prevents you from working in any gainful occupation? What does that look like? The one that is a bit confusing here is if your doctor is saying that your condition will likely deteriorate, if you cannot work now and the condition is going to deteriorate, how does it, how how will you be able to return in the future if your condition is getting worse? So maybe have a discussion with your doctor about this and see whether the doctor can, I suppose, give a bit more reasoned explanation as to why the doctor thinks that your condition will deteriorate. And if that is the case, how on earth will you be able to go back to work if you cannot work now? Pretty much answers that. Again, you're really fast today. I love these. You're going through this really quickly, but you're giving good answers, man. Here's our here's our next one. I didn't think we could get through that that quickly. Uh, next email, Martin. I'm on LTD for severe anxiety since December 2022. I'm feeling that I may be ready to return uh, to work, but uh, not at the same place of employment. What happens if I quit from my current employer? Are LTD benefits also terminated? Okay, so this is a good question, and there's a few things to be said here. Um, severe anxiety since December of 2022. Now feeling that you may consider a return to work, but not to the same place of employment. This is something that comes up regularly and we speak about this all the time. There's a difference between being disabled from your own job versus being disabled from your own occupation. Many cases get denied on this basis. If you say that you're on off work due to significant anxiety because the workplace was extremely stressful, there was a toxic workplace environment. You were bullied. You were harassed. But you can probably go back to a different employer now or a different location. The insurance company is going to deny your claim because they're going to say to you, our disability benefits are paid and the policy provides that you are entitled to benefits if you can submit evidence to support that you cannot work in your own occupation. The definition is not your own job. So they will say to you that this is a workplace issue. Many cases are denied on this basis. So if the question further on this, what happens if I quit from my current employer? Are LTD benefits also terminated? Benefits are not terminated if your employment ends or if you quit from your employment or if your employer terminates your employment. Benefits are terminated under the long-term disability policy if you are no longer disabled from working in, at this stage, your own occupation and after two years of LTD benefits, if your policy has it to your own occupation phase, any other occupation. I would be very careful here as they are to manage this. I would have a discussion with the doctor, consider returning to your place of employment that you had before, but it really depends on what you and your doctor decide. 
But if it is that you are able to return to work, consider, because it may be a gradual return, right? It may be that you do go back to work and you find that your condition becomes exacerbated again. Be sure that you remain in contact with your doctor on a very frequent basis during any potential gradual return to work so that you can report to your doctor if your condition worsens or if you have new symptoms so that if you go off work again within a certain period of time, we have to look at the recurrence provision, but if you do go off work with a certain period of time, you may want to say to the insurance company, this attempt didn't work, I put in a good faith effort, it didn't work, please reinstate my benefits. And it would be crucial during that time frame to have the doctor note a record if your, if your symptoms became worse, because many cases are also denied once a person has gone back to work and they go off again, the insurer may say, well, no, we don't agree. We think you can work. So it's, it's a big question. And I say with lots of answers to this, I would also want to say to this person who emailed us regarding quitting their position, please speak to somebody in our firm because we also have hybrid lawyers who deal with both disability and employment so I can at least advise you with respect to not quitting your position now. Maybe there is some form of a severance available and to consider how to manage and steer through this long-term disability issue. Always great advice, man. You're getting through these so, so easily. It just uh, shows you how well-seasoned you are for this radio show. First, you're going to start making it tougher, Martin. That's all there is to it, big time. We're going to get people to send tougher emails in. But uh, that'll pretty much do it for the hour. You want to continue that conversation with Martin, you can do so. The email address we use every show is help at disabilityrights.ca. You can go to mydisabilityquestions.com to ask more questions anonymously. They will get answered. might appear on this show later on. And then finally, the phone number, one 855 821 5900, and we'll talk to you and catch you next time here on the Disability Law Show. The preceding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Chorus Entertainment. Canada may be known for its landscapes and friendly people, but beneath the surface lies a darker side of crime, history, and the paranormal. Since 2017, the award-winning Dark Poutine podcast has explored the shadowy corners of the Great White North and beyond, delivering chilling tales from a uniquely Canadian perspective. Hosted by Mike Brown and Matthew Stockton with over 300 episodes and fresh releases every Monday, Dark Poutine is your weekly ticket to the creepier side of Canada. Listen to Dark Poutine on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.